So if you've been following along with our preaching series in the book of Joshua, uh, you notice that Joshua 11, in a sense, is very similar to the beginning of Joshua 9 and 10. It's like, uh, well, I guess some of you are too young to know this, but uh, before there was streaming available online, there's this thing called a TV, and you would use a TV guide or a TV list to catch your favorite show. And it's not like you can always have access to your favorite show. You need to wait. It's that one time of the week that you get a, a new episode. And so you tune in, and, and there are moments when you tune in and you realize that it's not a new episode, it's a rerun. And that's when you get really, really discouraged. And that's how it feels like in Joshua 11. You are expecting a greater battle, some crazy things to happen. But what you get is kind of like a rerun. You heard this narrative before where the people of, of the land of Canaan, they hear that God is on the move, that Joshua courageously is leading the people of Israel through these battles, and they are victorious. And the kings in the land, instead of uh, surrendering to the Lord, they stand up against the Lord Almighty, and they join forces, they form alliances, and they say, we are not going to back down, we are going to go to battle against Joshua and his people, and we saw this in chapter 9, we saw this in chapter 10, again, we see this with the northern kings in chapter 11. So it's a similar story, this sounds very familiar, but notice, this time around, the army is much, much bigger if you see in verse 4, it says this, And they, all the kings and nations listed in verse 1 through 3, came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. So this is a massive army in number. They're, they're like the sand in the seashore, which means they have unlimited amount of soldiers. On top of that, they have all these horses and chariots, uh, elite weapons that come in handy when you, you fight in ancient wars. And so basically the text is telling us this is a massive army that is loaded with the latest military weapons. And so this is a big problem for Joshua and the people of Israel. But we know that the outcome of this battle is already determined. We know how this narrative is going to flow because we see in verse 6, once again, the Lord God says to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Again, God is calling the shots. He's saying that there is going to be victory in the camp of Israel. Israel. And do you notice that this is the ninth time in the book of Joshua that God is de declaring victory over his people even before his people go to war? This is the ninth time that God says, you already won. If you simply follow me to the battlefield, it's, it's a done deal. All you have to do is now engage in the battle and you will have victory. That, that's what God is promising to Joshua here. And I think this is a perfect day to talk about an illustration um, regarding the Super Bowl, right? Uh, this year in the Super Bowl, we have uh, the Bengals and we have the Rams playing one another. And it's interesting because Tom Brady is not playing. Because Tom Brady is not playing, we don't know the outcome of, of the Super Bowl, right? Uh, and I'm a New England Patriots fan, and, and I'm telling you, anytime Tom Brady is playing in the Super Bowl, the outcome is, is, is almost predetermined. Right? You know, it doesn't matter who they're playing against. Uh, it doesn't matter how many superstars the other team has. Uh, 
I mean, 10 Super Bowl appearance, 7 Super Bowl championship rings. That, that's, that's pretty good. And so you understand that under the biggest stage, the brightest lights, there's no football player that has been more successful than Tom Brady. So if you are on Tom Brady's side, you are going to be victorious during the Super Bowl. And in the same way, what the Bible is telling us is this. If you are on God's side, you are going to be victorious. Now, I'm not saying that Tom Brady is God. I'm saying that Tom Brady is nowhere near God, and still he has an incredible winning percentage. You compare that with God's winning percentage, which is 100%. This is no match. It doesn't matter how many chariots and horses this this army brings. It doesn't matter how many soldiers they have, how well-trained they are. At this point, we are deep into the story of Joshua, and we know that the enemy does not matter as long as God is on the side of Israel and with Joshua. Tom Brady, when you are on his team, you have a very good chance of winning. When you are on God's team, winning is guaranteed. Guaranteed. The size and the strength of the enemy does not matter. And this is important because this means the enemies in your life, the opposition that you face, The Bible is telling you that there is no enemy or sin that is too big or too great for God. That's what it's saying. As long as you are on God's side, that you will experience victory. The outcome of your life is not determined by the size of your enemy or the strength of your enemy. The outcome of your life is determined by whose side you are on. As long as you are on God's side, you will be victorious because we see time and time again through the leadership of Joshua, the leader of God's people, we see that God's people are walking in victory. And I love how this chapter, it puts a spotlight on the leadership of Joshua. It highlights all that Joshua does. There's not much about what Israel does. I mean, all they do is simply follow the leadership of Joshua all throughout this chapter, you, you see what Joshua did for his people. You look at verse 9, it says, He, Joshua, hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Notice it does not say it was the army of Israel. It says it was he, Joshua. Verse 10, Joshua turned back, captured Hazor, and struck its king. Verse 11, he burned Hazor with fire. Verse 12, all the cities of those kings and all their kings, Joshua captured. Verse 16, Joshua took all that land. Verse 22, Joshua came and cut off Anakim. And and this is so cool because if you go back to Numbers 13, you have this scene where Moses is sending 12 spies into the promised land. And 10 of them come back and they say, we are like grasshoppers before these people. And the reason why they said that was because the Anakims, they were like giants in the land. And so they, they saw them and they were like, we are no match for these people. And yet, 40 years later, Joshua saw these people 40 years ago. And now he sees them again 40 years later. And we simply are told that Joshua came and cut off the Anakim and devoted them to destruction. Joshua is basically on a roll. That he's doing this, he's doing that for the people of God. And the chapter ends like this. It says in verse 23, it says, So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord has spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. So here we see the conclusion of this war is that there is rest in the land. And we know 
through our preaching series that, that this, this story is relevant to us. It is important to us because we serve a greater Joshua. That we know that Paul says in Romans 15, 4, that the Old Testament is relevant because whatever is written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures that we might have hope in our Christian walk. We are told in Luke 24 where Jesus meets these two disciples on the road to Emmaus and he's basically doing a Bible study for them. He's going through the Old Testament, pointing all to the different places where scripture is pointing to himself, Jesus. And we see in John 5:39, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures thinking that the scriptures gives you salvation and gives you life. But I tell you, the scriptures, they bear witness about me. I'm the one who gives you life. So we see the Old Testament is relevant and important because it points us to Jesus Christ. And it's obvious that the story of Joshua points us to Jesus because the name Jesus comes from the Hebrew name Joshua. Same meaning. It's a transliteration of the Hebrew word. God saves. And you see that really this is a picture. The story of Joshua is a picture of how Jesus leads his people to victory, to this final rest, which one day will happen according to the book of Revelation. And if, it, if this is all true, this simply means at the end of the day that as people of God, we can have rest. And so the question that we want to ask today is this, how does Joshua bring rest upon his people? How does Joshua bring rest upon his people? There are three things I want to highlight from today's text. Number one, Joshua brings rest by obeying God's law. Joshua brings rest by obeying God's law. Again, you see throughout chapter 11, not only is there an emphasis on what Joshua has done, there's an emphasis on Joshua's obedience to the law, to what God displayed through Moses. It says in verse 9, and Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. Verse 12, and all the cities of these kings, and all their kings, Joshua captured He struck them with the edge of his sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. In verse 15, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Same thing with verse 20. And you see on the grand finale in verse 23, so Joshua took the whole land according to all the Lord, all that the Lord has spoken to Moses, and the land was finally at rest. So you kind of see over and over again, there's a repetition, there's an emphasis on the fact that Joshua was victorious, but he was obedient to the Lord. And this is where we learn this incredible principle that complete obedience leads to complete victory in the Christian life. Complete obedience leads to complete victory in the Christian life. A lot of times we want to live a life that is victorious, yet we don't want to be obedient to the Lord. But the way that it works is God says, if you are completely surrendering to my will and obeying my word, you will be victorious. Joshua brings rest by obeying God's law. Number two, Joshua brings rest by conquering evil. Joshua brings rest by conquering evil. Now, we talked about this before. Our youth actually had a Bible study on this as well. If you read the book of Joshua and you see how all these cities are being conquered and the people are being destroyed, especially in chapter 11 where it says not only were the kings destroyed, but the full city, everyone who was in those cities were devoted to destruction. There's a question that that, that you have to ask. The question is why? 
I mean, it just seems like Joshua is so cold-hearted that he's merciless. And you, you, you wonder, how can a loving God actually pour out such, such, such scary judgment upon these people? And you can understand the kings and the warriors that, that came to, to fight. You can understand the judgment that falls on them because they literally try to fight against the army of the Lord. But what about the women, the children who are in these cities who were devoted to destruction as well? It says that all the inhabitants were devoted to destruction, meaning women and children were devoted as well. How do you make sense of that? You, you wonder, like, how can God pour out his judgment upon these innocent women and children? And the answer is, the Bible makes it very clear that these people are not innocent, that they're not sinless. In fact, if you go to Leviticus chapter 20, and by the way, if you really want to understand the backstory of Joshua, uh, the book of Joshua, I would encourage you to read Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 20. In Leviticus 20, you have a long list of things that you're not supposed to do as the people of God. The, Moses lays down the law. He says, be holy for the Lord God is holy. And he tells the people of Israel, don't sacrifice your own child to a foreign God. That's what pagans do. He says, don't practice sexual immorality, adultery, prostitution, incest, homosexuality. Don't, don't, don't defile God's design of marriage. Right? That, that's an offense against God. God says, don't do it. Why? Because in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 23, it says this, And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things. Moses lists out all these different things that says, don't do this, don't do this, things that are wicked, sinful, in, in the presence of the Lord, and he says, don't do this because these are things that the people do in the land of Canaan. Therefore, I detest them, God says. The Canaanites were not innocent people. They were people who walked in, in, in evil, in wicked ways. They literally rebelled against the Lord. They, they stood up against the army of the Lord. For centuries, God waited and waited for them to repent. God waited, hoping that they would come back to their senses, realize that there is actually a ruler, a creator, who designed all things. And you can't just do things your way, but you have to honor the, this incredible design that God has placed, and it is for our good. But instead of submitting to the rule and the ways of the Lord, they decided that, no, we're going to enjoy our life. We're going to be in our own, our own cities. We're going to build our own fortress. We're going to do the things that we want to do, worship the idols that we want to worship, and we're not going to give up. We will rather die going into battle and stand up against the Lord Almighty than surrender to him. That, that, that was their attitude towards, towards the Lord's judgment. And so as a result, we see that God pours out his judgment through his people. But what's interesting is this. In Leviticus chapter 20, after saying that these are the things that uh, the people do in the land, it says in verse 24, But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the people. Verse 26, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. So in one level, God is judging the sin of the nations, those who are defiling the ways of God. He's judging those people. On another sense, what God is doing, he's protecting his people. He's saying, if you are going to go into this land, and if there's going to be wickedness and evil and evil nations and kings around you, you are going to be defiled. 
that you are going to be influenced. They're going to penetrate your culture, change the way that you think, and ultimately they're going to bring you down. They're going to contaminate you and lead you astray. And so what God says is for your good because I want you to be holy, because I want you to be set apart for my purposes, I'm going to drive out these people from the land. Be holy for I am holy. So we see that Joshua, he was declaring war against evil to protect the holiness of God's people. Joshua brings rest by conquering evil. One after one, king, evil king, evil nation, Joshua drives out. And the third thing that we see is this. Joshua brings rest by establishing divine rule. Joshua brings rest by establishing divine rule. You go to chapter 12, and it's kind of different from what we have seen so far. It's no longer really a story. It's more bullet points. Uh, You basically have a long list of kings that were defeated by the Israelites. The first six verses talk about the two nations that were defeated by Moses on the east side of the Jordan River. And then following that from verse 7, you have 31 kings and cities that were destroyed and conquered by Joshua. And it says at the very end of verse 24, in all 31 kings. So a long list of names, and in all 31 kings, these kings were conquered by Joshua. Now, I counted all these names, by the way, just to make sure the Bible is accurate. You know, I, I don't know about you, but when I see a number, I'm like, can I really trust that? So I, I, just, I just counted all the names, and I was like, oh, I just wasted two minutes of my time. I should have believed in the Bible, right? Uh, oh, a little faith. Uh, but yes, there are 31 names exactly, and those 31 kings that inhabited the land were destroyed. So why does the author include this long list? I mean, most of these names we can't even pronounce properly. Why does he do this? I think the author wants us to know that at the end of all the war and the battle and the fighting, there's only one king that remains in this land, and that is the Lord. That is God, Yahweh. He is the one and only true king. He is the last king that is standing. There are 31 kings that exist in this land, 31 kings that fell, and there's only one king that remains and reigns, and that is the Lord God. Joshua, he brings the rule and reign of the Lord into the promised land so that there can be ultimate peace in the promised land. So what does this mean for us? Joshua brings rest by obeying God's law, by conquering evil, by bringing the rule and reign into the promised land. So what does this mean for us? We already said that the story of Joshua points us to the story of really the Christian life, how we are being led by our greater Joshua, Jesus Christ. And we know from Hebrews 4 that one day Jesus will return and conquer all these evil nations and rulers and drive out all sinfulness and and wickedness from this land. There will be a day when God establishes his everlasting kingdom through his his chosen son, his, his king, Jesus Christ. That day is coming. But notice that until that day comes, there is still a lot of battles that need to be fought. Although God declared victory from the very beginning, every single time he says, basically, you're going to win if you simply follow my ways, notice that Israel still needs to go to battle. They still need to fight against their enemies. They still need to conquer the land. And I was thinking about this. No, if you think about Israel, it's not that big of a place. I, I think it's smaller than Virginia, so that's, it's, it's not that big, right? 
You, you, you have a, a nation that is so tiny, that is inhabited with so many different kings. These many kings are living in this land. They have their own city, their own fortress. They're living as if they are the ruler of the world. And God looks at that and he just walks in and takes out one by one. These evil nations that stood up against the Lord are being conquered one by one. In one sense, it reflects the final reality where one day he's going to return and drive out all the wickedness and evilness in this world. In one way, the land of Canaan actually is a reflection of what's going on in our hearts, right? Because in our heart, before Christ, there are so many kings that exist, these many kings that we, we submit to. Some, for some of us, it's money. For some of us, it's security. For some of us, it's comfort. For some of us, it's our family. For some of us, it's our career, whatever it might be. There are things that we, we protect, things that we submit to, things that we idolize in a sense. And we say, we need this. You can have other aspects of my life, God, but we need to protect, I need to protect this area of my life. And what God is saying is this. If you want to be my holy people, you need to declare war against the evil and the sin in your heart. I will one day come back and wipe out all the evil and the wickedness of this land. But for you to experience true peace right now, what I need to do is deal with your heart and your life. That's what Jesus is doing. Although he has declared victory on the cross, and we saw that in the previous chapter when Joshua literally puts the, the, the five kings under the feet, right, of the people of Israel and says, look at these people. The enemy is already destroyed. And so the cross was that incident where Jesus defeated sin. He defeated the enemy. He declared victory. The victory is already ours. At the same time, there is this war that goes on where you have to conquer the rest of the land. And so Joshua does this for the people of God, and in the same way, Jesus does this for his people. You know, I think when we think about rest, a lot of times we think about physical rest, getting sleep. But I think the idea of rest in the Bible is so much deeper than that. You can have a lot of sleep, you can have a lot of free time on your heart, but still be restless. Be anxious and worried in your life. You can still live in fear like the king's even though they were living behind their fortresses. And the reason why is because there is still sin in your life. And you know that sin is a crime against the Lord. Just like the people of the land of Canaan committed a crime against the Lord, the kings committed a crime against the Lord, we know that we have committed a sin against God. And so how can you have rest against in, in this situation when you committed a crime against the Lord? Well, some of us, we try to convince ourselves and convince God that, okay, what we did is actually not that bad. Some of us, we, we try to argue with God. I mean, what I did was bad, but it doesn't deserve death. For some of us, we try to cover up our sin by doing more good stuff, by living a proper life, by being a good person around other people and to our family. But at the end of the day, what we realize is that we can't cover up all our sins. No matter how hard we try, no matter how much effort we put in, we realize that there's this sense of guilt and shame that will not go away with our own effort. There is this sense of restlessness that exists in our heart because we are not at peace with God if we are living in sin. But here's the good news. There's one way that a criminal can experience rest and freedom. And that is when a criminal stands before the judge and the judge lists out all the sins that the criminal committed. Murder, adultery, 
lying, coveting, all these different things, list them one, one after one. And you are feeling ashamed, you are feeling burdened. And at the end of the day, what the judge says is, you have committed all these crimes, but we pardon you, that we forgive you. When you go to the court and you are pardoned, that's the moment that you can freely live without any guilt and shame. And here's the good news. Jesus is the ultimate judge according to Revelation chapter 1. And what he does is he died on our place. He put, took the penalty of our sins. He defeated death on the cross. And when you and I believe in Jesus, he says to our face, you are forgiven. Now go, sin no more. Live in freedom. Live in righteousness. Live in holiness. When you hear that from the judge, it doesn't matter what other people say. When you hear that from the judge of the universe, it's so liberating. And because of that, you're able to live a holy life before the Lord. So this morning, I think that's what Jesus is saying to us. He's saying to us that I saved you, I called you to holiness, to live a life that is set apart. And that means that you need to declare war against the evil and the sin in your life, in your heart. You got to declare war against anything and everything that is not of God in your life. And Jesus is saying this not because he wants to destroy our life, not because he wants to make our life difficult. He's saying it because he wants us to live a holy life that's pleasing to the Lord. He wants to experience life as it was meant to be. He wants us to live life to our fullest potential. And so he's saying that if you have these enemies in your life, if you have these brokenness in your life, if you keep sin in your life, over time, these things are going to haunt you. Over time, these things are going to bring you down. So don't just try to avoid these issues. Deal with it right now. The reason why he's exposing this sin, and this happens even especially when you become a believer, you realize you are more sinful than you actually are. There are these problems that come up to the surface. The closer you get to the light, there's all this dirt that, that is revealed in your heart. And Jesus is not doing that to shame you. Jesus is doing that to deal with your problems so that you can be free from your issues, so that you can live a holy life that's set apart in, in this land for the glory of God. And I want you to know that it's going to take time for some time. In Joshua 11, verse 18, it says, Joshua made war for a long time. This was not a one-day war. If you do the math according to Caleb's story, which we're going to see in a couple, couple weeks, Joshua made war against the Canaanites for seven years. It took seven years for Joshua to drive out the evil, the sinful nations from the land of Canaan. And in the same way, although God frees us from our sins, the penalty of our sin, the moment that we believe in Jesus, Romans 6 talks about how Jesus is working in our heart right now to free us from the power of sin, that he's driving out all the, the evil, the sinful things in our life from our hearts so that we can freely live as holy people set apart for the Lord. Just like Joshua did for Israel, Jesus fights for our rest. He lived a life that is completely obedient to the Lord and to the law, which we could never live. He conquered sin, and he's conquering sin in our hearts. He establishes the rule and the reign of Jesus in our hearts. And, and Joshua, if you think about his story, he did this temporarily, imperfectly, but Jesus, he is going to do this for eternity. And this victory is going to be perfect and permanent. And so you kind of have hope in your battle against evil and sin. You know, Timothy, my son, he loves doing Legos. 
and he's at the point where he's not just doing the, the big ones, the Duplos, but he's, he's dealing with the smaller ones, and he, he, he wants to be really good at Legos, but at the same time, he's not as good. Um, it's, it's hard for him to put things in the proper place, and he gets so angry and frustrated, right? He has a temper, and so he throws things, he breaks things, he cries in and, and frustration and anger, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at uh, and what's going on, and I can easily make a rocket for him. I can easily make a house for him. I can easily do all the Legos for him and say, hey, here we go. You enjoy it. God could easily do that for our lives. He could have easily driven out all, all the inhabitants of the promised land. He could have judged these people even before Israel ever entered into the promised land, and Israel could have entered into an empty land. But why doesn't he do that? Well, God wants to teach the people of Israel that the journey that they're on is a journey with him. The reason why I don't do Legos for Timothy, instead I hold his hand, I talk to him, I try to direct him, I try to be on his side. And time, and when it's really difficult, I'll put a Lego on it for his plate uh, instead of him. But I want him to grow and mature. I want him to live to his fullest potential as a human being. In the same way, what God is saying is, you have potential to be holy. I created you in such a way. And when you are living in my ways, when you are following my leader, Jesus, you can experience life as it was meant to be. And in this journey, God is going to teach us how to be holy like him. And so although this journey is difficult and hard, I'm sure Timothy would rather prefer me building an entire Lego and giving it to him. But if that happens, he will never grow as a human being. And the same way, what God is saying is, trust me, the reason why I'm taking you to battle, although the battle is already won, is because I want to teach you how to live as holy people, as people that are set apart. And in the process, I want you to embrace the relationship that you have with me and live life to its fullest potential. So the good news that we see in today's text is this. The last king that is standing is our king, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.